Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Jonathan Hart, who is currently based in Tokyo, Japan. And Jonathan has worked in the UK, in India, in the US, and now in Japan. In the past, he's been VP of Decision Sciences for a company based in Texas. And now he's the head of data science and analytics for Mullen Low Profero. In this episode, uh, we talk about creating data science teams, uh, how to establish great cultures, especially he has a really good viewpoint of collaboration, worldwide collaboration when teams are located in different hubs around the world. We speak about what makes a great data scientist, how to do strategic strategic decision-making with data science, communicating results, and um, a really interesting discussion around designing for designing projects and work to create data that then can be used for analysis and improvements later on. Uh, It's a great conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and I'm sitting here in Tokyo, Japan with Jonathan Hart. How are you doing, mate? Good, welcome. And thank you so much for making the time. This is uh, very exciting to be uh, chatting with you and get to pick your brain. Yeah, of course. Happy to host you here. So at the beginning, um, beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask um, how, how you got started in this field, because uh, I find that uh, a lot of listeners are data scientists that are coming through the ranks or aspiring data scientists, and um, they're always curious around, you know, how do, they, how do people get started? So in, in your case, how did that happen? I think I was I was very fortunate in terms of timing. Uh, you know, as I was kind of going through university um, in the uh, in the early two thousands, that's the 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 time right before um, data started getting really exciting, and we started being able to get the computational power to do really interesting things with it. I think uh, I always knew that I wanted to do something analytical. Mm-hmm. I was a economics major, uh, doing some marketing on the side, and I took took one graduate course my senior year in econometrics. Uh, I had a friend who was a, um, uh, a, a PhD student at the time. He said, you really got to take this course. It's going to change your life. And that's where I got you know, introduced to regression modeling and, and really was able to make the connection between the, the statistics I had learned and some real world applications. Um, and I think you know, from that point on, I was like, OK, this is really compelling. And this is where I want to focus. Um, and then as my career has moved on, the, the methods have gotten more sophisticated, the computational power has increased, uh, the amount of data has increased exponentially. 
Uh, and so for me, there, there wasn't really a time before I was a data scientist um, yeah. because I was born in that lucky moment where, um, where, you know, where it was incepted. Yes, definitely, where the, the data and the computational power were both mm -hmm. um, getting there. Uh, that's really interesting. And so after taking the, the econometrics class in the, the last year of your, of, of your course, um, did you start working soon after that? What happened next? Yeah, uh, right out of college, I went to work for Accenture, mm -hmm. uh, and I was, uh, again, really fortunate. Uh, I got kind of picked up by uh, the seed of what's now Accenture Analytics, so it's called Accenture Marketing Sciences at the time, it's a team of 12 people uh, building some regression models to do marketing measurement, uh, and over, the, over my tenure with Accenture, I got to see that team grow from you know, a dozen people kind of scattered across the world to a global network of 500 professionals. Wow. Uh, and so it was really kind of exciting journey to go on for 10 years, um, you know, at, at the moment when analytics was gaining traction and becoming strategic priority for a lot of organizations. Definitely, definitely. And um, what was it like being in that, in that journey of going from a dozen people to, to the 500? Did you get to work... Um, in lots of different client sites? Did you get to uh, do a bit of traveling? Uh, how was it being in that, in that journey for those 10 years? Yeah, I feel like I probably had 50 jobs <laughs> in those 10 years for a variety of reasons. One was uh, when we started, it was essentially a startup mentality, yeah. right? And then going all the way to like being really absorbed into the Accenture machine and having processes and infrastructure in place to be able to perform at a really high level. So you know, all of the stages between, you know, startup and that level of sophistication I got to experience. Um, obviously, because of the, the management consultancy angle, I got to work in a lot of different industries, financial services, retail, automotive, uh, which was great. And then um, also in a, in a lot of different um, international environments. So I spent two years working in India. Uh, right. I spent another year working in, uh, in the UK. And then there was kind of frequent travel to other international offices. So uh, really from a lot of perspectives, it was a really rich, uh, rich experience and a great place to get started professionally. Definitely. And what were some, um, some differences and some commonalities that you saw uh, across industries and, or across geographies during that time? I don't know. The, the, the biggest commonality I would see is that, I don't know, kind of, kind of at the end of the day, um, there's this like race for sophistication and trying to build more complex models and get more data and, and get uh, you know this this edge but in most cases in most departments people have like just started their journey mm -hmm. right and so uh, just doing some kind of baseline how do we think about this as kind of a, an engineering problem that we could solve using analytics versus bringing in these really large solutions um, there's just opportunity for that everywhere Definitely, definitely. And why, why do you think that there's such a uh, discrepancy between what people want or think of being the fancy models mm. and what they need, which is uh, sometimes very simple solutions? Why do you think there's that, that big gap? So I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think from one angle, um, like math can be a pretty divisive topic, mm -hmm. um, you know, for, and I think primarily that's due to the way that it's taught. So when we look back at like elementary education and, and middle school education, math is usually taught as something uh, very abstract, 
Uh, it's taught in a way that you're supposed to kind of appreciate the, the beauty of it. Uh, and it's not really taught in a functional or practical way. Um, and I think it, it turns a lot of people off at, at early ages. So you get people who say like, oh, I'm not a math person or they don't really want to kind of like engage in, in understanding the technical details of it. Yeah. Um, I think that's one piece. I think on the other piece is, as a data scientist, it's, it's really fun to, you know, see how complex you can get, see how accurate you can get. Um, uh, data scientists tend to be very competitive um, and, and uh, you know, I think are really proud of their work and are always trying to push it to the next level. And so you've got that tension of, uh, well, we really just need something kind of simple that we can explain that um, is, is really useful. And then you have people who really care about their craft and are trying to take it to their logical conclusion. That's right. That's, <laughs> I never thought about that, but it's so true. Uh, as data scientists, we are definitely very competitive and want, want to do the, the, the fanciest and um, the best possible outcome um, when sometimes a simple one is, <laughs> a simple solution is much better. And um, so you mentioned about maths being a bit alienating for a lot of people. Uh, how was it for you? How did you feel about maths when you were growing up and, um, and studying in college? Um, actually, it was, it was not one of my strongest subjects. Mm -hmm. So intuitively, I understood how the math worked, but I didn't really have the focus or patience to... Uh, do the arithmetic correctly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I could, I understood derivatives and I could calculate them, but I'd get down kind of to the end of solving things and I would make arithmetical errors because the, the idea of it was more interesting to me than the, um, you know, actually, actually doing the work by hand. So being able to solve an integral on a, you know, with a piece of software uh, really made it a lot more compelling to me. I think also there's, there's a huge difference between math and statistics, mm. right? They tend to get, get lumped together. And, and while like um, kind of pure math wasn't necessarily my strong point, when I got exposed to statistics, it, it mirrored so closely the way that I personally thought about the world in terms of probabilities and chances that um, that became really compelling to me. And, and I think we have that kind of dichotomy happening within the data science community too, right? Because you've had statisticians working on these problems for years where the data was limited and we had to make sure that the, there was enough sample size and that we had enough variation to be uh, really confident in our conclusions. And then you have computer scientists who are coming more from a pure maths background and saying, well, we have so much data, none of that matters anymore. And yeah. so we can just build these classification engines and we don't really need to like understand necessarily how it's working or how accurate it is as long as we're getting the result that we want. And those, those two schools of thought need, need and I think will converge. Yes, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really good point. Um, and that's really interesting that you mentioned that statistical thinking was something that, um, that in a way came kind of naturally to you. And it's really interesting because uh, it's counterintuitive for, for a lot of people. What do you think um, made it intuitive for you? What was it that, um, that made that easy or easier? Um, I think, I think maybe it was the kind of the background that I had in econ yeah. and being able to, 
look at a problem really rationally. Mm -hmm. So you learn about things like sunk cost or marginal utility. When you learn the concept of thinking on a margin instead of thinking of an average, like that will that will change your world. Um, not just you know in that field, but also the way that you approach many things in your everyday life. So uh, I think that kind of classical training in economics had taught me to think about or to solve problems in different ways. And then when I encountered statistics, it was okay. Here's the kind of the next next logical step on on how to improve my personal decision-making. Amazing, amazing. And how, how do you describe the difference between thinking on the margin and versus the average? Uh, so, you know, I, I don't have a uh, uh, kind of a, a good simile for this, but when you're thinking about the average, you're, and, and uh, we do this a lot in business and personally, you're thinking about things in totality. So I spent, Uh, this much time doing something and I got this much back out of it. I spent this much money and I got this much revenue. This was my ROI. Mm -hmm. uh, but that information never really tells you uh, about what you should do next. And so when you start thinking on the margin, uh, you can kind of set aside everything that's been done previously and just focus on the decision that's immediately in front of you. So I may have you know, already spent all this time and effort to get in, to this place. Uh, but is it worth the extra time or effort to get to the next place? So I think uh, probably a uh, probably none of my instructors or my professors meant this, but once I realized this concept of thinking on the margin, uh, I realized that like getting an A wasn't worth it anymore, right? <laughs> Because the, the optimal return for the time that you put in is for me was a B. Yeah. Because uh, I could get I could get a B by going to class and doing my homework and doing the reading. Um, But if I wanted to get an A, I had to spend a lot more time studying. Um, and so the distance between getting from, you know, getting to a B and then from getting from a B to an A, it just wasn't worth it for me when I evaluated that choice on the margin. That's excellent. <laughs> I'm sure it was an unintended consequence, but yeah, a very so rational one. That's why I always hire B students. Right? Yep. Yes. <laughs> that's really good. That's really good. And... Um, That's really interesting. So uh, tell me, after you, you were at Accenture uh, for 10 years, um, what, what happened next? Um, so the Accenture experience was great. There was a lot of travel involved there. Mm. Um, two things happened. One, I kind of uh, wanted to focus more on some, um, some personal priorities and uh, kind of move out of, which necessitated, necess necessitated moving out of the, um, that travel regime. And then two, I wanted to... Uh, go back to school and complete a master's program, and I nice. needed to be in one place in order to be able to do that. So um, I took a job, uh, took a VP role at GSD&M in Austin, Texas, which is a, a full-service advertising agency. Um, uh, it's been probably 40 or 45 years in the making. Some of their early clients were uh, Southwest Airlines when they were a small regional carrier and Walmart when they were... Uh, small retailer in Arkansas and, and built both of those brands into uh, what are essentially category leaders now. Exactly. And, and um, what type of work were you doing there? Uh, so I had a bit of, bit of a uh, broader role there. So the decision sciences uh, department included our uh, analytical capabilities, also included our uh, social media capability, mm -hmm. uh, and then anything related to technology and data. And so all of those 
fell under the uh, uh, the provision of that rule. Uh, but none of, none of those existed uh, before I arrived, so uh -huh. all of those were built kind of over the course of the uh, the last five years. Amazing! And how was how was that journey? How, when um, when you first started on that role, what was some of the things that you did on the in the early days? That, that might have been like done well or, or done badly. Mm, I think the, you know, the most interesting thing for me moving from the uh, consultancy into the agency space was uh, the way that analytics was defined was very different. Okay. So uh, based on, you know, how I had been trained in econometrics and the types of models and approaches that I was using at Accenture uh, and then moving into the agency world, uh, it hadn't occurred to me that if you weren't using a predictive model, that you were doing analytics. Mm -hmm. uh, and so on the agency side, there were a lot of tools like Google Analytics or social listening analytics tools. And um, I don't know, it took me aback at first because it's like, okay, yeah, these have data in them and they have measurement. Uh, and the people who are using them are generally thinking analytically about problems, but I don't know if it really counts. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and so there was, I think, there's a big education curve to be able to say, like, okay, the, you know, these sorts of capabilities, they are analytical in nature, but there's there's a whole nother set of methods and applications that need to be brought to bear in addition to this for us to, to really say that we have a robust analytical process. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, that's, that's a really interesting view. And I think, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely important, important tools. But I do agree that a lot of people would see, you know, like social media listening as maybe not as analytical as the predictive modeling. Mm -hmm. um, and how did you start that, that journey into, I guess, the agency style analytics? Um, was it something that you were researching on your own or how, how did it happen? Um, you mean how did, how did I learn about those kind of capabilities? Yeah, and start to build the, the yeah, teams around it. So there, there were already some uh, people in what I would call analytical roles at the agency. They just weren't kind of assembled into a unit where they could learn from each other or use a constant set of approaches or tools. And so it was really just sitting with the people who were working in, in media and performing media analytics functions and sitting with the people uh, in production who were performing digital analytics functions and the people who were creating social content and doing some measurement on the back end uh, and saying, you know, okay, this is basically the survey of what we have. And if we were able to tie these things together, what would it allow us to do? What would people get excited about? Mm -hmm. well, one of the one of the reasons I was I was really keen to take that position is um, GCNM is a full service agency, which means they have creative, media planning, media buying, digital and social, and some experiential on in the same house. Uh, which means that for some clients, you can affect every part of the customer journey. And what I saw on the management consulting side was mm -hmm. uh, it just seemed insane to me that all of these functions were broken apart and we had clients who were managing 10, 20 different agencies that were experts in various parts of their uh, business but were really unable to connect 
any of the data or the learnings or the assets in a way that um, uh, you know would kind of get you any any scale or would make things be uh, greater than the, the sum of their parts. Um, so I think the uh, even the agency model is changing, like that consolidation is starting to happen again, especially as we become more customer focused and experience focused. You just, you know, like an Apple product, you need to be able to control the whole ecosystem in order to be able to, to deliver a first class experience. And so I think a lot of the, you know, poor consumer experiences that exist today are uh, not a result of that fragmentation, but they're certainly entrenched by it. Yes, I can. I can see that, um, and yeah, it's something I hadn't. I hadn't thought about actually. Uh, that's that's really, really interesting. And so, when when you were at that agency, how did you go about uh, building your your different teams? So the we started with the the analytics team because mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the the primary um, impetus for forming the role, and. Uh, so it was basically taking what we were doing, which was a lot of reporting at the time, and getting some infrastructure in place to automate that, um, and also to, to change it from being uh, just kind of like the production of documents to being more uh, more insights driven, which I know is like a term that I roll my eyes at sometimes yeah. uh, because I hear it so much. But uh, what I mean in this case was that we like stopped publishing PowerPoint decks and started publishing white papers. So all of our reporting turned into um, more of a kind of like newsletter or blog style. Here's what happened this month. Uh, here's some data that explains why that happened. And then here's the recommendation going forward. And so it was in that sense, it was asynchronous, right? It wasn't just mm-hmm. here's a set of charts and graphs and stuff that you're, the data dump you're expecting at the, the end of whatever kind of arbitrary time period that we've uh, decided. Uh, so, you know, kind of automating or refreshing that portion of it. Um, and then started started bringing in uh, some people who had different skill sets. So um, uh, all kind of uh, technical skill sets, um, you know, statistical or data science based, uh, but people from different fields. So like behavioral psychology, um, or uh, you know something that's like kind of tangential to what we were doing, but people who weren't necessarily trained in the advertising space, uh, and so that's that's the way we built that team. And then you know as we were doing that, we learned that a lot of the the people who were creating social content were actually like pretty uh, analytical too. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of times the people who are creating the content are also functioning in the social analyst role. Because the feedback is so immediate that um, you know, it's not like running a TV spot and then you know and unless you do anything like you don't really know what happened right other than I, other than it ran social media is a different beast because uh, you know, the people who are creating content really care and get immediate feedback about the results uh, and so it made sense to start to organize that into a capability and there was just a lot of uh, opportunity with our, our current clients to able to bring social programs to them and sell them in so that uh, that kind of happened on its own and then as those two teams grew um, the the data and technology the management and technology requirements grew as well and uh, so we said okay we can't have the analysts being the ones who are responsible for 
organizing and processing and assessing all of their data for analysis, we need to have some specialists in place who, um, uh, who can do that pre-work for them. Nice. Um, I've got so many questions on the part of the journey. It's really interesting. How did the uh, customers take it when you were changing from PowerPoint decks to, to white papers? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, uh, different clients reacted differently. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got a spectrum of clients who we would send reports to and who would never open. Yeah. Right. So you put the tracking link in the document and you see, did somebody open this? And you know, they're just, they're getting sent, but they're not getting open. So in those cases, it, it didn't really matter so much. Mm. Uh, I think the more engaged the client was or um, the more, you know, their like personal performance was tied to the performance of the the website or the social program, uh, the more receptive they were to getting information in that format, uh, because it does require a little bit more intellectual uh, engagement on both sides, you know, in order to be able to have that conversation. But usually, we would send them across, give people an opportunity to read through them, and then we would have a meeting to discuss, like, are we going to take these recommended actions, or are we going to take some variation of them, or you know, is, is there some blocker why we can't do it at this time? Yes. Yeah. And um, would, at that stage, would their input um, feed back into the white paper in, in any way? Um, not necessarily for that month, yep. but for the next month. Yes. So one of the things that we had to do a lot was, um, you know, if you think about it like a newspaper, mm -hmm. you have, you have, some stories which uh, just come out of the blue and you need to be able to jump on them as soon as that happens. Yeah. Um, and those, those weeks or those months are, you know, really rich. And then the other months, uh, you know, you can't depend on that all the time. So you need to manufacture uh, some of your own news. So you can do that through uh, testing. Uh, you can do that through, uh, you know, taking some long-standing questions and doing these kind of micro-analyses uh, as you go. But you basically need to like build a pipeline of your own content mm -hmm. um, so that you're not relying on a seasonal event or, or something else to create the story for you, which is where I think a lot of reporting falls down, right? Because some months it's something really interesting happened and everyone wants to know about it, but some months it's like, just, just another month. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What what was it that um, that attracted you uh, in, about uh, advertising? Uh, the creativity. Uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, I I don't consider myself a, a tremendously creative person. Yeah. Um, others may argue with me on that, but I would say so. Um, yes. Being being, <laughs> uh, being a, a really kind of like hyper rational, uh, logical person. Um, I'm really inspired by uh, the arts and people who can create them. So getting to be around writers and artists and designers for me, uh, it's a real treat to be able to do that professionally. And it makes me think about um, my work in, in totally different ways. Uh, so that on, the, on a personal level, that's, that's one piece. On a, on a professional level, I think what's really exciting about advertising is that or, or any kind of communications is that you actually get to touch people and affect their lives. Um, and if you do it well and you design experiences that are really beneficial for them, it's a positive, uh, positive impact. And there aren't, 
you know, a lot of fields where you can really have that kind of um, direct impact on individuals. Very true. Very true. And what have been um, some of the more either exciting or meaningful um, types of projects that you you worked on? Um, thinking what I can can talk about exactly. That's <laughs> that's always the problem, without right? Reaching some client confidentiality. Um, yeah. I think it's. I think, and it can be very general. You know, we were talking earlier about social analytics, and mm-hmm. you know where this falls on the on the spectrum of being true analytics or not. Uh, there's a lot of power in natural language processing. And I've, I've used that in several instances to mine social conversations or consumer feedback or kind of public reviews of products and services um, and come up with some really interesting, really insightful results that we were able to uh, use to change the, the product or the branding or the communications or the features um, in a way that impacted people. Yes. And... Uh, I think I think it's a it's a really interesting use case because it's giving a voice to the individual, which is usually um, not possible. Yes, definitely difficult to to do. Uh, that's really interesting. And when you went to communicate the uh, those results, or in general, communicating results or coming from advanced analytics or something that might be quite technical, how, how do you go about communicating the, the results or the outputs back to the clients? I find it works best when I'm able to pair a data scientist with uh, a strategist okay. who's really data savvy. So having the data scientist be able to say, like, this is what I found and this is kind of what the, the raw thing looks like. And then using somebody who's thinking really strategically about how we can use this to help craft that communication. Uh, And I think there's a lot of pressure on data scientists right now to be better at communicating. And it's it's unbalanced in my mind Mm -hmm. because the the pressure is being put on them to, uh, to do a better job communicating, but I, I don't necessarily see on the other side of the table that people are putting in more effort to understand. Uh, and it needs to come from, from both directions. I agree. I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at, the, at, this, at this point, every executive should know what a regression model is. They should know what a machine learning classification algorithm does at a high level. I think, you know, if you're, if you're not kind of willing to invest the minimal time that's necessary in understanding those methods at a high level, then it's it's really hard to have a, a discussion about why the results are important or meaningful or, or what could be done with them. Uh, another way that I've kind of attacked that problem that's been really successful is um, rather than taking a pile of data and saying like what are the what are the insights that we can get out of this, um, asking a set of questions up front Mm-hmm. And then uh, mining the data for answers to those specific questions. So you have a set of things that all of the stakeholders are interested in getting really specific answers for. Um, and so then the, the results that they get back are aligned with something that they wanted to know in the first place. Because when you're just mining data, um, as a data scientist, uh, you know, your, your level of exposure, understanding of what somebody else might find useful is... 
uh, it can be really difficult in some cases. That's right. And I know that, you know, of various points in my career, I've worked on, on projects that um, where we were taking the first, first approach that you mentioned of just looking at the data and see what we can find in there. And when we've gone to present pre preliminary results, people go, oh, yeah, we know that. That's, right. that's yeah. obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, taking the approach of what, what is uh, interesting for you guys, what do you want to know, what are the questions, and taking that as a starting point, mm -hmm. uh, I can definitely see the, the benefits there. Yeah, I think that there's a really good process in the agency world called the brief, where it's like before you start any project, you kind of have to come together and say, like, these are the assets, these are the outcomes, these are the constraints, this is what we need. And so treating, like, we've treated data scientists uh, in the same way where you like kind of give them a brief you know here's the data here are the questions and now you need the answer to this rather than yeah here's here's the data what's what's interesting and doing the the brief for the uh, data scientists is there anything in particular that you that you look for from the customer or is there anything that you ask them specifically or, or is it more more general uh, I've done it a couple different ways. Like sometimes we workshop it. So there could be like a preliminary survey that's, you know, what are some outstanding questions you have or what are questions that you keep asking that you don't feel like you get satisfactory answers to. And then uh, trying to survey that from a broad group of people and then bring it together and say like, you know, here tend to be the three or four things that everybody wishes they had more visibility into. And so we're going to use this as the you know, the genesis of the brief. That's excellent. And in those cases, do you filter the questions by the data that you have? Or, um, or are they more open-ended questions and, and do you think about the data later? Yeah, they, they have to be more open-ended. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the exciting things that we've, we've started to do here at uh, Mullen Low Group is um, it's this idea of designing for data creation. So uh, before we say this is the data we have, what can we learn from it, or we have these questions, can the data answer it? We say, what is it that we really want to know? And then can we design the execution, the, the communication, the media plan, the platform, whatever it is, can we design it in some way so that by virtue of people interacting with it, it's creating the data necessary to answer that question. Um, and then now we've got everybody aligned on, this is what we want to learn. We're going to execute in this really interesting way. Even if we get a non-answer on the back, it's okay because it's, it's a non-answer to a question that, that we posed. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. That's really interesting. And how have clients reacted to, to that methodology? Well, I think, you know, when you look at, like, across the industry are people who are being really disruptive in the data space. So if you look at, like, let's say Amazon Go, yeah. right? You have the, the largest retailer on the planet opens a single grocery store in New York. <laughs> Why would they do this, right? They don't need the money. At the time, it didn't seem like, okay, they have Amazon Fresh, but, like, are they going to get into the retail grocery business? It doesn't really make any sense from a business perspective. But if you think about what they're actually trying to do, they were trying to create data. So they built the store essentially as a lab. It was hyper-modular with all of the uh, AI tracking of 
movement and where you're looking on the shelves and then they're able to reconfigure the the product assortment where it is on the shelf the price point all this stuff at will so they've, they've created a lab to understand how people shop and they can create any data they want by making variations in that space and then when they bought whole foods it became obvious right rather than trying to uh, you know, do this same kind of thing at scale in a really kind of inflexible planogram that had been around for a while. You've created a lab, you've learned all this stuff, and now you can apply it to this this whole chain. So I think that's like a really compelling example of um, like a, a best-in-class customer experience that was actually created to create data and not necessarily for the, the customer first. But the, the hook there is that in order for it to be successful, the experience has to be functional for the consumer or they're not going to give you the data, right? So it has to, uh, it also has to be like just as compelling as if you were designing for the customer first. And this is a really interesting creative challenge um, for a lot of the people that we work with here because they're creative thinkers and designers and now they've got, uh, you know, an additional piece uh, of complexity to think about when they're um, putting together these these projects and platforms. Exactly, that's really interesting. And how do you guys navigate that that challenge of, I guess, injecting data into the, the creative process? So we've uh, and the, uh, so we've taken like an agile data science approach, mm -hmm. and there's um, I think some pretty strong opinions on whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, just in the, the industry in general, but the way that we've deployed it is essentially to sync with our UX designers so that our data scientists are, they're not doing sprints on their own for their own work, they're doing sprints in conjunction with the UX design cycle. So the UX designers say, okay, I have to design this, this feature, mm -hmm. here are the things I don't know, or here are the assumptions that I have, or here's what I'd like some more data on, so I'm gonna design this feature in kind of a, in, minimum viable way, but I'm going to design it in a way to create the data to answer those questions. And then during the next sprint cycle it runs and the data scientist can analyze the data and feeds it back into the design process. Interesting. And do the teams that are that are working on the on the project from the different areas like the designers and the data scientists, do they um, sit together while working on, on uh, the project or is it mostly separate? How do you guys structure it? So we have a center of excellence uh, model here in Asia Pacific. So the experience design team uh, is based out of Sydney uh -huh. and the data science team is based out of Tokyo. What that allows us to do is we have, we have offices across the region, um, you know, but it, it's really hard to have just one data scientist or one designer or one developer in each office yes. and not have a community of practice. So we've got Chengdu as the development center, Sydney and and Tokyo, and that makes up the, the trifecta. So uh, we have to work in, in that triangle without people you know, being physically co-located. Yes. And uh, Ajira and Confluence are you know, amazing. Your best <laughs> amazing friends. For this. Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. And um, what, what are some, I guess, some complications or some challenges that arise from having the, um, that center of excellence model in different geographical locations? Uh, you know, had worked across several uh, geographical locations before. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a, 
a large project that I was responsible for at Accenture where we were working across, uh, it was a US-based client, and then we had delivery centers in India and Greece. And so it was basically 24 hours a day, right? Exactly. Somebody was working on this. And you know the biggest challenge there was the handoffs, uh, right? So uh, every eight hours, the, the work is kind of moving, and it's got to be in the, in the right place for the next team to be able to pick it up. Uh, in Asia Pacific, uh, you know this this region is so vertical that there's mm. basically no time difference, maybe an hour or two, yeah. um, and it's been a lot a lot easier to manage. That is fantastic, and that's one of the things that I was thinking. Um, yeah, around the, the small time differences definitely makes it makes it really good. Um, and what do you think of the the, the center of excellence model as? Um, something well obviously not only to be used in in data science but i'll ask you about data science um first mm -hmm. what what are some of the benefits that you see in the center of excellence model and what are some advantages that it gives you so you know for our specific use case i think there are two big advantages one is that molino group has a a group office in uh, uh, most countries in asia pacific and so that group office, uh, while they may not, you know, uh, some, some are small, some are very large, um, some may have been able to support a data science capability without the COE, others certainly wouldn't. So now they all have access to um, a set of tools and approaches um, from the COE in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. uh, and then within that group offering, um, there's actually uh, several different pieces. So there's there's Molen Low, which is communications. Uh, there's Media Hub, which is media planning. There's Profero, which is the digital transformation arm. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Salt and Open, which is PR and CRM. And so it's a hyper bundled offering. So each engagement that we have with a client will have like one or more of those uh, tentacles. I should probably explain the, the Mullen Low Group logo is yes. an octopus so ah, each, yes. with boxing gloves. So each boxing glove represents a different part of the hyper bundle. So you've got this mix of geography and then uh, also like, you know, different domains uh, that not now that have different configurations in each market, but now all have access to this same capability regardless of uh, how they're executing for the clients in those markets. That's really great. That's really great. And so the the other offices outside of the CRE, they also, I don't know if they have access to or they're able to hire people with um, skills that are centralized in the COEs? Yeah, so not, not all the COE members actually sit in Tokyo. Uh -huh. uh, I think it's important always to have some technical people on the ground. Mm. Um, who can interface with clients and really understand what their needs are face-to-face uh, -face and then translate that into this is the kind of you know analytical or data science solution that we might want to deliver um, so it's you know while it's while it's based here it's more of like the center of the community I would say for the region excellent that's um, yeah I see I see so many benefits to that model it's it's crazy. Um, definitely, definitely something um, really good. And you, you mentioned before in, in the way that you uh, build teams that you generally look for different uh, skill sets and, and different backgrounds as well. Mm -hmm. How has that shaped in, in building the, uh, the team that you have now? And obviously, 
spread uh, geographically with a geographical spread as well how do you combine the skills yeah so I've, I find that um, uh, the most disruptive people are people who are coming from other industries right and who have yes. just seen this kind of afresh for the first time so you know I had um, uh, you know I've hired people I've hired physics PhDs I've hired sociology PhDs like uh, people who have really good technical skills but have don't really like necessarily know anything about technology or advertising or, or media and, and so they like seen this afresh for the first time and they have really interesting set of you know questions and I, I like always to be kind of challenged on my assumptions and that's that's a role that I try to play for for others so I find that really valuable you know the team here um, kind of our first hire was um, from uh, Boeing Research Labs in Vancouver uh -huh. uh, so you know, he's coming from a totally different perspective, right? If, 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 if the models don't work there, the planes are falling out of the sky. Correct. If the models don't work here, you know, we can fix it. Yes. You know, we can fix the technology, we can rewrite the business rule. Um, but, it's, you know, it's, it's always interesting to, uh, you know, see people with really sharp minds and uh, really sharp skill sets attack new problems. And what type of team culture do you create for people to have those discussions and, and challenging assumptions from, from each other? How, how do you, uh, what do you build into the culture to allow them to do that? Culture is important and I think that's another benefit of the COE is that on a small team of data scientists or as a single data scientist, it's really easy to feel misunderstood or disconnected from the larger organization because what you're doing is is far afield to what most people are you know what most people can understand uh, so just having that co-location I think is you know it's an important element uh, in addition to that uh, we have to remember that we're scientists and that all of the technology and all the systems and all the approaches were built out of the scientific tradition, which is founded on questioning things. And so the minute that we start using data to prove what we already know, or we start defending our approaches because we like them, <laughs> uh, we betrayed that tradition. I love that. That is really, really good. And what makes a great uh, data scientist? As in, like, what types of things do you look for uh, when you're when you're either hiring or when you're um, helping when you're developing data scientists in your team to help them grow professionally? What are the things that you look for or that you help them develop? Curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Just asking why, asking the next question, listening to the answer, really trying to understand what people are trying to accomplish, really trying to understand like what's in the data and never really being satisfied with the work that's been done because there's always something more interesting or another way to look at it or uh, that, that level of excitement is there about uh, it being a, a journey and not just a project, I guess. Yes, that's really interesting. Yeah. And how is that um, how is that balance with the 
I guess the the economics of the business and the and the customer needs or or customer focus in the sense that not reining back the curiosity, but where's the yeah essentially the balance between chasing something uh, through curiosity and the the economics or financial uh, realities. So the agile process has been really helpful for us. Okay. So the sprint cycles. You can do, kind of do whatever you want during the sprint cycle, right? According to the story points, if you want to chase a rabbit, but when the sprint cycle is done, you have to be done. Yeah. And it gives, I think, enough structure for people to be able to contain their time and then balance those competing desires. Exactly. So the, the curiosity and the fire is there, but you have this block of time to get it done in. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And if you have things that you want to explore that you didn't get to, then you write them as user stories. And we try to work them into to later cycles when we have bandwidth. Brilliant. That's, that's really good. We spoke about the, the data scientists themselves and what makes a really great one. I think that yeah, curiosity is, is definitely uh, number one. I, I love that. Looking at the, uh, at the management side for data scientists, what do you think makes a a great data science uh, leader or manager. That's a it's a t- it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I think right? it really it really depends on the environment. Okay. So you have, you know, s- some environments where data science is core to the product, right? So if you look at like a Netflix uh, or an Uber, these kind of digital first um, businesses, and I imagine the management challenges there are much different, right? It's it's probably about we want things faster and better, and there's a lot of a lot of pressure for improvement, and so the the managers there need to spend more time balancing, uh, you know, what are the executive asks versus am I am I burning out my data scientists by running them too hot? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on the on the other side of the spectrum, uh, where you have organizations who are less accustomed to working in a uh, this kind of engineering style way or less accustomed to like understanding what a data scientist is capable of. There's a lot of kind of shielding there to make sure that they're not getting requests to do things which aren't intellectually stimulating for them. Right. Yes. Main, I think maintaining the happiness of a data scientist is, is a pretty difficult challenge um, at this stage because there are so many opportunities. Uh, it's really easy to get a job in data science. Uh, they all compensate pretty well. And so if you're not happy, you know, the, the friction is not there to, to look for another opportunity. And so you need to, you really need to like steward how those people are, are being used. So I think it, it really depends on the, you know, kind of the industry or the, the environment that you're managing those data scientists in. But at the end of the day, I think it's about just, making sure that people are working on things that are interesting for them because that's why they got into data science was to be able to solve interesting problems and as long as there's a pipeline of interesting problems to solve then you're in a, you're in a pretty good spot definitely and do you um do you ensure that the problems are interesting at the i guess at the front end of the pipeline in working with with specific customers or in specific areas or helping customers move into 
uh, think about problems in a certain way? How, how do you manage the, um, the front end of the pipeline so the interesting problems come in? It's a bit of traffic control yeah. to start with. So as projects are coming in, is this a business analyst project or is this a data science project? Can this be done by somebody who's an analytical thinker and can meld some data together in Excel and communicate it in a few slides? Or do we need to, to solve this problem in a different way? And so making sure that those projects land in the right place is the, is the first critical step. Uh, the, the second step, at least in our approach, is to make sure that we're asking interesting questions in terms of this is the information we want about you know, consumers. These are the, the revealed preferences that would help us to engineer better experiences for them. So how can we design systems where you know, that behavioral data is volunteered up? And the, the more successful we are in able and doing that, um, then the interestingness of that question translates into the interestingness of the solution that the data scientist needs to deploy. Exactly, that's, that's really good. And do you find that people, um, that data scientists gravitate towards certain types of problems or, um, or certain areas of interest? And, and how do you manage that uh, with the the development of, of the data scientists. Yeah, everyone's got their pet interest, right? Yeah. So mine is nested time series transfer models. I right. would use this to solve everything yeah. if I could, but it's not always the appropriate solution. Uh, and it's, as, it's, it's not too good to get specialized in that respect right now because the packages that we're using are still evolving. It's, yeah. it's not a field uh, like, you know, construction maybe where the set of tools that are being used have been in play for a long time and mm -hmm. they've been pretty well tested and configured to the the needs of the industry the the open source software we're using is changing on a daily basis and so getting too locked into one type of classifier or even maybe just using classifiers in general uh, you don't know where you're going to end up five years from now so true. Yeah. So true. I mean, we probably won't even be using neural nets as we know them today. Exactly right. right. On. Yeah. So staying really, uh, really flexible is important. Yes. And looking at what's, what's coming next. Yeah. Um, tell me, what is it about nested time series models that, um, that you love so much? Well, well first, first tell me. What, well, um, you know, before I understood quantum theory. Yes. I, I love I where this I, is you going. Know, I, yeah. I, I fell into this uh, is demon trap, which is, oh, okay, if, if we could know the, the position and velocity of every molecule in the universe, then we could wind things forward and backwards and we could, we could understand everything. Yeah. You know, obviously, this is, this is not possible because of quantum, quantum uncertainty, but uh, you know, like Einstein, I think it kind of eats away at me at the back of the mind that like, there should be a... a you know, a superset equation that can describe all of the functioning of the universe. And so when I look at things like that are random walks, like the stock market or horse racing, there's still a part of me that thinks someday this is going to, someday there's, there's an underlying system here that's going to be explained. Yes. Yes. Probably a fool's errand, but you know, well, this is this is where the fascination comes from. Yes, yeah. I love it. Yes, I, I definitely, my mind like goes there as well in terms of like 
if we if we have the data then yeah it seems yeah it just seems like that's what would happen but <laughs> love it and um i should i should have asked you first um describe um nested time series models uh for us and and i guess some of the applications that, that you uh use them in so a nested time series model would be i think the easiest way to think about it would be like an arima model that shares coefficients so you're trying to predict something like the weather and you're looking at the, the patterns in the weather over time now there are several things that influence that right so you could incorporate them as independent variables um, but you might have something uh, like a leading indicator like air pressure and so you want to build a separate forecasting model for air pressure and then as that barometer changes it's pushing data into the into the, the weather model and so you can kind of quickly see how there may be many influencing factors just for your your top line model and then as you say well this is a factor and this is a factor then there are sub factors and you quickly end up with like you know a very large tree of things that are that are that are driving towards one outcome yes exactly but and you what, need to forecast independently that's right so i wanted to ask you are there any differences in the way that data science is applied in advertising or do you see something that's unique um, about data science and advertising that combination that might be different to mm. to it in other places one thing that's very common in the the application of data science is that it's generally focused on some sort of outcome so trying to improve an ROI try to improve a prediction try to improve a classification rate and the the outputs of the models are used in that way one thing that I've found really interesting and challenging working in a creative organization is that a lot of times we're mining data to find information in a way that can be creatively inspiring to other people right. so how do we take data about how customers are actually interacting with our brand and mine that in a way that uh, becomes inspiring to somebody who needs to write a TV script or generate a campaign idea or work on a brand positioning and it's just a totally uh, totally different use case than yeah. most data scientists are used to working towards but cool like to, to be the muse for someone else that's right that would be super interesting mm -hmm. um, when did you uh, first come across this I first first came across this as soon as I got into to advertising. Right, yeah. the a lot of a lot of agencies focus on the big idea or like what's what's the big brand idea, mm -hmm. and this is where the time and energy goes, and that's where the awards come from, and the awards lead to new clients, and so they're the measure of success in this industry is very different from many other industries. There's definitely a fame component to it yes. there, right? So. When people look at you and try to understand what you do, they're trying to understand how can you how can you help me be better at what I'm doing, or how can you help what what I'm creating be better? And in this case, it's it's an emotional idea. So, how do you use data science to come up with you know more impactful, more interesting, more emotionally driven ideas? And those have always been really fun projects to work on, but they're you know, they're hard to scale. Because every time you have to do something different, different data, different approach, different answer, you can't just 
write the Python scripts and then <laughs> run them, you know, every time you get the same question. Exactly. So completely custom every time. Mm -hmm. um, and how, what does the, um, the process look like in, in merging those two together, the, the creative and data science to get that better emotional response? So you've got to actually put those people together. The, the traditional creative team was a writer and an art director, uh -huh. so a visual and a, and, a, and a written component. And that made sense when the mediums were not interactive. Uh, but now that the, the communication has become more interactive, those teams have started to change. Maybe you introduce an experienced designer. Maybe you just have one creative person who's doing both copywriting and art direction. Another way to do that is to pair a data scientist with a creative person and make them jointly responsible for, uh, for the output. And, and both parties get excited about that, but there's not a good roadmap to tell you how to work together. You've got to use the creative process uh, as it exists in order to be able to get to something new and different. Yeah, that's, that's I, I think, quite unique to, to advertising. That's, that's really... Really good. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple of, I guess, kind of like left left field um, questions. Um, I might start with one of the uh, easy easy ones. But well, what's the the best advice that you've received in in your career? I guess one of the best professional <laughs> professional advice. Very early on in my career, I was told by a manager at Accenture, never be good at something you don't like doing. So if you look at my PowerPoint slides, they are horrendous. <laughs> Somebody else always has to fix them for me. So find your find where your strengths align with yeah. <laughs> what you like. Yeah, I think it's you know it's just a different way different way of saying play to your strengths, right? But if you if you get really good at doing something that you don't like doing, that's not a not a path to happiness. Exactly right. Or success. What are some some I guess either lessons learned or recommendations that you have for up and coming uh, data science leaders? We we need to do a, a better job of. Uh, branding ourselves. I think we've spent so much time uh, in the, the technical piece trying to master these really difficult skill sets. Yeah. And the more sophisticated those have gotten, the more alien they've become to others. And I, I, you know, I made the comment earlier that the, the bridge needs to come from both directions, right? People also need to invest time in trying to understand this, but we need to give them compelling reasons to do that. Uh, because if we just say that it's their responsibility and it doesn't happen, like it's it still affects us directly, right? Because it, it limits the limits the type of work and the scale of work and the application of the work that we can do. So there needs we need to do a better job branding ourselves in terms of the types of problems that we can help people solve. And that's a challenge that, that every leader in data science faces in their organization. That's right. That's right. And how do you think that that branding uh, should change? Ostensibly, we're problem solvers. So if you give us a hard problem, we can solve it. But if there's no problem to solve, then it's really it's really hard to know where to know where to start or what might be useful to somebody. And one of the things I really appreciated about the management consulting approach was that people people in that environment really understood the business. They really understood what would be beneficial and could connect that dot to, oh, this is the type of data science application that could help solve this. Uh, but those were really highly 
specialized people and not every organization has them. But if you're in a leadership role, uh, it's, it's your responsibility to, to build that bridge and to uh, excite and invite and, and get people to participate on the business side as well. Yeah, exactly. That's really good. Tell me, what, um, how has a past a failure or apparent failure uh, help you or help you set up for later success? What has been, and, or do you have a, a favorite failure <laughs> that, has, um, that has helped you later on in your career? I know this is a tough one. So. Yeah, I think, I'm thinking about this model that I built. Yeah. That was the, the contributions that we had built separate models in different regions of the globe, and then all came together to reconcile them into a global view. And the, the model that my team had built was the results were just way different from the other regions. Right. And so the assumption was, well, that model's wrong. Yeah. And I said, okay, you know, probably the model's wrong. So we'll go back and rebuild it and we'll use a different methodology this time. And we got the same answer. And, you know, took it back again and still like really incredulous. I like, oh, this can't be right. Like, go like, you know, go do this again. So we did it a third time with a totally different methodology and got the same answer. So, you know, kind of regardless of how we approached it, the, the patterns in the data were burning through. And after the third time, everyone kind of recognized like, okay, well, this market must just be substantially different yeah. uh, from the other ones. But uh, I, was talking, I was talking earlier about uh, the importance of self-doubt or you know, being true to the scientific process where you kind of assume that you're wrong yes. uh, rather than assume that you're right and look for evidence. And I was really quick in that case to just assume that I was wrong. And I was you know, glad to go back and do the work again, but the, you know, the confidence level in those results, I should have been, I think, more, you know, more certain. It doesn't help to, you know, it doesn't hurt to check things two or three times, but yeah. if you've done the work, and you've used the right methods and you've taken the right steps, then uh, that taught me to be more confident in the, the conclusions that I came to. Brilliant. That's really good. That's really good. Otherwise, you have to do your homework three times. Exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, well, that's, that's really good. Um, what, what do you think are the, um, the current challenges in, in data science? The current challenge in my mind is trying to understand where it will stop. Okay. So when we look at the at the trajectory as it is now, it's hard not to look into the near future, into the far future, and to think about these approaches, neural networks and classification engines and so forth that are powering AI. It's like what task cannot be automated, hmm. and then coupled with you know, uh, more maturing technology in robotics and, and other areas. How, you know, what is the logical conclusion of this, right? So we're going to have driverless cars, um, possibly quick service restaurants are going to become totally automated. Obviously there's going to be economic disruption, but after, after data science has run its course, what could even be next? What is, you know, what is the next data scientist? I think it's, it's really hard to imagine that at this point. As we're so early in, in the journey of what's going to be possible. Exactly. And what do you think are some, some points between now and when data science will have run its course? What do you think are some points that we'll go through? 
It's hard for me not to answer that question as an economist. So That's why I was asking. I, yeah, I look, I look at radical technolo uh, technological disruption, yeah. uh, which is going to take tasks that were performed by hand and automate them, much in the same way that things happened during the Industrial Revolution, which led to widespread unemployment and labor unhappiness and, and so forth. And I think if, if, we're not, if we're not careful, we're going to you know, be in, in a similar kind of situation. Uh, it's been really interesting just in my limited time here in, in Japan to think about that because of the technology is approached in a much different way. So Uber is basically non-existent here because the, 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 the taxi union and everybody recognizes that autonomous cars are coming and there's going to be disruption. But the taxi population is um, tends to be a bit older, probably maybe 10, no more than 20 years away from retirement. And so the thought is, why disrupt now? Why not let... You know the people who are in these roles now kind of finish off their careers, and then as that's happening, that's the time to bring in the disruption rather wow. than hiring you know new taxi drivers you know who are who are younger. And so it's just a very it's a very um, pragmatic approach to managing the introduction of technology with yeah. a lens on the the social impact. It's not in any way technophobic, so it can be done. Can it, can, it can be done. That's that is so interesting. So as these as these things start to to happen, um, as in technology being introduced, um, I like that that discrepancy between technology being introduced as soon as possible, or um, the adoption starting straight away, versus the adoption started starting in a in a conscious way. This is a big misconception, uh, I think, about Amish culture too. Okay, is that it's not. Maybe speaking out of turn here, but based on my yeah. understanding, it's not uh, it's not anti-technology. Uh -huh. It's just that any piece of technology that's introduced into the community is done through a group consensus. Right. So they've decided collectively what technology to adopt and what technology not to adopt. But it's not in any way just kind of a blanket statement of we're not moving forward from this point. I did not know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's a really good approach. And tell me, how, how did you uh, end up in, here in Japan? Well, anyone who's been to Japan probably doesn't need an answer to that question. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really compelling place for a lot of reasons. I and mean, the, the culture is so different from the environment that I was raised in. Uh, you know, when I think about the, the landscape of the cultures of our world, it probably couldn't be more different. But it, in the same time, it's it's really highly civilized. It's basically like as close as I could get to traveling and putting myself in in, in an alien civilization. Uh, and it's it's really compelling um, just to to be in an environment where people uh, think think about things in different ways and have different priorities. And it really gives you a chance to look inwards and and challenge your own assumptions, which is kind of a theme for me. I've always gotten that living abroad and traveling abroad, and that's the kind of experiences that I seek out. So Japan, you know, itself is really compelling. Uh, I think what the Mullen Low Group is doing with Perfero and digital transformation uh, is also a really compelling pivot from uh, an agency that I that I didn't see happening elsewhere in the industry. And uh, the leadership here is 
uh, was really inspiring. So it was a, a mix of things that uh, just made this opportunity really compelling. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for that. This has been uh, so much fun. Really, really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Yeah, of course. Happy, happy to be here. Uh, thanks a lot. I'll talk again soon. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.